Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Tiger Project. In this episode, we talked to Dr. Cruz about her experience as a first-generation college student at Dartmouth College. The experiences of first-gen college students are often overlooked, and we wanted to shed light on her story with this episode. Hope you enjoy. So first, could you introduce yourself and your role at GCS? I am Dr. Cruz. I am currently a history and social well, social science and English teacher here. Um, this year I'm teaching the 11th and 12th grade, but I've also taught ninth grade English, seminar 10, and I am a thesis advisor, club advisor for Women's Empowerment Club, the Sneakerhead Club, and I also help to support and facilitate the Latinx Hispanic student affinity space. Amazing. So a few years ago, you started. You shared a Tiger Talk with the upper school, which was about your experience as a first-generation college student at Dartmouth College. Mm -hmm. And so I first wanted to ask, what inspired you to share that story? Um, my first inspiration was when I went to the Tiger Talk coordinator and sort of asked, like, well, what do I do? What are, what are these Tiger Talks and what are they for? Um, she shared with me that they are opportunities for our community to get to learn about one another through like the lens of like education or the values of Tiger Pride. And since I was a new faculty member that year, and we were mostly on, um, on Zoom that year for, for teaching and for classes, I figured that giving um, space to sort of sharing my own experiences, given that I wasn't able to really interact with students a lot in person, um, would be a way for the community to get to know me as well. So what were some common emotions you felt as a first-generation student at Dartmouth? Yeah, so um, I, I actually didn't visit Dartmouth until I went there to start as a student um, because New Hampshire is just so far away from where my family lives in Texas. It wasn't really possible to go visit. Um, and I think also at that time, um, the, the sort of concept of doing college visits and being really intentional about finding a place that fits you wasn't really part of the conversation when I was applying to college like 20 years ago. Um, and so my first emotions were just, I remember feeling super overwhelmed and afraid. Um, part of that I think is also just culturally um, going so far away from home and also sort of um, being unsure how to start that new stage of my life. I was also really young, so 17, um, and in hindsight I think maybe a gap year or two would have been better for me. Um, but I think also just culturally to um, speak to the first gen experience, my family when I went off to Dartmouth they told me, keep your head down, don't say much of anything, don't like cause trouble, don't make waves. Uh, you don't want them to think that they made the wrong choice in accepting you. And so that's also like a very cultural sort of mentality that my family has as Mexican immigrants, as migrant workers, where it's just do what you're told, just make sure that you, um, you show them that you're grateful to be there. And so those were, I had a lot of conflicting emotions of trying to like find my way, find my space. Um, and that was, it was just a really hard time my first year. Um, I was living in a dorm with students who were mostly from the East Coast, many of them who came from private schools, independent schools, boarding schools, um, and I didn't even know about such places. Um, so it was really hard to, to find a footing. Um, and I'm really thankful that I was able to find some really great friends who were also first generation. Um, 
and be able to find some sort of community because I think that was one of the biggest things that helped me be able to like get through my my time in college. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know you said that during your time at Dartmouth there are a lot of kids who seem like they already know what they're doing, they're familiar with this similar environment, oh, yep. and so it's easier for them to navigate this. So yeah. I also wanted to ask, what are some hidden costs or challenges of being first-gen in comparison to other students that aren't really talked about? Yeah, um, I'd say, for instance, one of the first things was getting the right clothing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I didn't have a winter coat. Um, I mean, it got cold, it gets cold in Texas or where my family lives, but not as cold as it had been in New Hampshire. Like that was a cold I had never experienced before. Um, so those are the things, that's, that's one thing, right? Like just even thinking about what do I wear to even step out of my room? And having to like trek to chemistry lab at seven in the morning, you know, on these frigid, uh, winter days was really challenging because I didn't know what to do. Um, also just thinking about in terms of like extensions, right? I didn't know extensions were a thing on assignments. Um, here it's very common at GCDS, like I have conversations with students about like, you know, adapting deadlines or, or creating um, sort of a, a new schedule that will work with students. I didn't know that that was a thing. Um, and so I would stay up all hours of the night trying to finish my work on time because I thought I had to get it in. Um, otherwise, like I just get zeros. Um, also just thinking about how do you take classes that might just be of interest to you? Like how do you find your interests? Like that was just something I was so unaware of um, because growing up my family was very much like if you're going to go to college, you should go and be a doctor. Because being a medical doctor, um, knowing about healthcare, knowing about the body, how to heal the body, how to treat the body, that is something that transcends language and culture. And so for my family, that seemed to be something that would be very legible to the outside world. And ultimately, that's not what I pursued. But um, I think just trying to th use college as an opportunity for self-exploration and reflection and experimentation with new classes, new ways of thinking. I had no idea about any of that. I went to a high school that was very structured, that you know, every school year, you knew exactly what classes you were going to take based on your grade level. Um, and so I had, all of a sudden, hundreds of options, and I didn't know what to do. Um, and so just being able to have like those basic conversations, I think, was something that wasn't really aware, I was aware of as a first generation student, but also things like going home for Thanksgiving. Um, I couldn't afford to go home at Thanksgiving. And so I would always get adopted by f people whose families were from the area or from like New York, um, or like parents weekends. Those are things that I think now there's a lot of initiatives at, at a lot of universities to support first generation students. But back then it was like, if your parents couldn't attend, then that was another opportunity for you to be adopted by someone and their families. Mm -hmm. um, but it was also very, uh, it was very lonely sometimes just because, you know, my family, they didn't see the campus until, like I went to school, they dropped me off, and then they came for graduation. Those were the only two times they had ever gone to the school. Um, and so it's hard then to be able to share your experiences when you know your family isn't able to really see and know what those experiences are like. Um, and so I think those are also 
some of the, the challenges that I wasn't aware of when I agreed at 17 to go like across the country and, and study in the wilderness of New Hampshire. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So it seems like you, it seems like you face a lot of difficulties in your first year at Dartmouth. Yeah. So did you have those same experiences in your sophomore and your junior year and your, or your senior year? And if you, if you did uh, come across uh, difficult times, how did you find a way to like overcome those times? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Ajdi. So I didn't go to Dartmouth my sophomore year. So after my freshman year, after my freshman spring, um, I went to the registrar and my grades were really terrible. So I was either going to be put on academic probation or even potentially um, be like kicked out. So I decided to just withdraw. So I withdrew from the school. So my sophomore year, I actually was home in Texas and I was just working as a receptionist at like an eye doctor's office. Um, and so I spent that year just sort of working and thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. And it was my grandfather actually who was the one who convinced me to reapply to go back to Dartmouth and to finish and get my, my degree. Um, and so when I went back for my junior and senior years, I by then Dartmouth has a huge Greek community, like most students at Dartmouth are in like fraternities or sororities. And so I joined a sorority that many of my friends my freshman year were a part of, and that was really great in helping me find community. Um, I changed my major from chemistry to history, and that sort of sent me on this new trajectory where I found a lot of students who are interested in pursuing questions about historical context of, you know, Latinx people, African American people, Asian folks, and just sort of thinking about how do those experiences um, impact like today's society. And so I'm really grateful for that. And I also had really fantastic professors who became my mentors and they helped show me a path to a career, to academia that I didn't think had was available to someone like me from my background. Um, and so that was really vital for me as well. So I was part of this organization called the Mellon Mays Fellows. And so what that is, is um, it's funded through the Mellon Foundation and it's an initiative for um, underrepresented students, so mostly first generation um, or students of color or low income students. And what it is, it's a program in a number of universities around the country. And it's geared towards high achieving students from those groups who are interested in pursuing a PhD. And this is an initiative from the Mellon Foundation recognizing that the numbers of first gen, low income, people of color, if you've been to one or all three of those, um, the number of people in the United States who have PhDs or who are professors in the university system is so low that they um, have created these pipelines to support undergraduate students to do more intensive research and to consider getting a doctorate. And so I was one of those fellows. And through that, I was able to um, connect with students who were from similar backgrounds to me, who were also interested in pursuing more education, but also struggled with how do I tell my parents that, you know, here I am going to college, but I want to go to like seven more years of school. You know, um, those were conversations I was able to have with those particular students. And some of them I still talk to today and, and they are, you know, one is a professor of film studies at Cornell, another is a professor at George Washington, another one has decided to dedicate his life to um, religious studies, and so he is a dean at like a seminary school where he's helping to train and educate um, the next generation of like religious leaders. And so we all 
still connect with each other because we had that sort of foundational experience of being some of the first in our communities to chart new paths, but even just sort of imagine new futures that maybe didn't exist for us even a generation ago. Yeah. yeah. Seems like you've built a really amazing support system. Yes. Like the last few years. Yeah. And so that connects to the next question, which is how did you navigate your post-grad life as a first-gen student? Yeah, so that was super, um, it was like staring into an abyss. I had no idea which way I was going to go. So I took two years off, off after college. I went and I worked at a law firm in Dallas. So I worked at a firm that um, I split, I would spend half the year in Dallas working as a paralegal, the other half of the year working as a paralegal in Mexico City. And I had considered doing law as a profession. Um, but as I like spent my time working in the law field, I, I just, I felt that like it wasn't, engaging me in the way that I had hoped. Like I found like, you know, studying cases and preparing for trials really interesting, but there was still something that I felt like wasn't like inspiring me to get up every day. Um, and I kept thinking in the back of my mind that I really wanted to like go back and study more, I wanted to go to grad school. Um, and so after two years, I applied to grad school to do um, a master's and PhD program to, at a variety of universities. Um, and so, that program I mentioned at Dartmouth, the Mellon Mays Foundation or Fellowship, they helped immensely in being able to sort of figure out what to do in terms of graduate programs. Like they were the ones who gave me the advice, don't attend a PhD program unless it's funded because there's no way you'll ever be able to pay back those student loans from seven to 10 years of graduate study. Um, that was something I didn't know. And, um, and so that was super helpful, and that's even advice that I continue to give to students even to this day, um, because we tend to often think that, we don't really think about like those material costs. Um, while I was in grad school for seven years, I, I had no idea what was gonna happen afterwards. I might get a job, I might not. Um, and having those real conversations about how are you going to feed yourself? How are you going to keep a roof over your head? Um, those were really important conversations that I needed to have, and I'm glad that I had like mentors who could, um, who were willing to sort of put me in those uncomfortable situations to really truly think about what it was that I wanted to do with my life. Um, and so that was why I ultimately decided to go to grad school. I went to Berkeley. I got a fellowship um, there to to pursue doctorate work, and then from there, just I think being connected also with first-generation students at the undergraduate level, at the graduate level, um, really just, I think, a lot of people who come from these communities, because they've benefited so much from community support, in turn want to provide that for others. Mm -hmm. And so I very much um, feel like it's my responsibility and duty to sort of support other students who are trying to figure out how to chart their own path or how to visualize futures for themselves that they didn't otherwise think that they could have access to. Right, right. Yeah. Right. You mentioned earlier that there weren't as many uh, first-generation programs to support like first-gen or incoming first-gen students. Yeah. So I want to ask you, how did the conversation around first-generation programs, how did that evolve or how did that change throughout the years? Yeah, so when I was going to Dartmouth, they did not have a first-generation office. Um, now they do. Now they have an entire um, office with a number of people that, are, that have been hired specifically to work 
on supporting first-generation college students. And that's the same case, like Berkeley has an office like that. Many universities have, have initiatives like that. And partly I think it's because, one, we're having such an influx of first-gen college students over the past decade, decade and a half. Um, but also I think like the younger generations are more comfortable having these conversations. Um, not that I was ashamed of being first gen when I was in college, but it just wasn't something that came up often. Um, and I think that nowadays people are more willing to engage in these conversations. And it truly is like a, a badge of pride to sort of be the first to do something in one's family. Um, I was talking to a student just a week or two ago who's in the 11th grade, and they're the first in their family to, they will be the first in their family to graduate from high school. Um, and I really appreciate and value that they were willing to share that information because I think the more often we have those talks, the more commonplace those conversations will be. And also to just sort of say like, we need to figure out ways to, to give more targeted support to these people. Um, not because you know other groups don't need it, but rather there's there's generations of just unknowing, mm -hmm. um, and how do we increase access to knowledge is something that I am always trying to strive for. Yeah. yeah. Um, we are also wondering how has your experience, because it's been, I'm guessing it's taught you a lot. Yeah. And so how has that changed your perspective or how you approach teaching at GCDS? Yeah, so one of the things that I really love about being here at GCDS and and how um, the school encourages faculty to embrace teaching is I very much try to create community in my classroom. And so one way that I do that is rather than telling the students, you have this assignment or you're going to do this reading or you're going to learn about this, I reframe it into, into we. We are going to uncover. We are going to read about this. We are going to consider. Um, because I, I don't know everything and I couldn't possibly know everything. And I know that my students come in each day with a wealth of knowledge just by virtue of being humans in the world. And so for me, like I wish I had had teachers in college or in, in high school or even in grad school who, who would recognize and affirm that I also possess a lot of knowledge just by virtue of being a human in the world and that you know all of my experiences help to inform my opinions or how I approach learning or my perspectives. And so I really try to um, empower students to recognize that in themselves too. And so one of the other things that I do in my classes, I don't assume knowledge um, in terms of like historical events or um, you know, certain terminology, I will ask students, um, do we know about this? Have we heard about X? And then if not, if the majority of the students are like, no, we haven't, then I use that as a time to sort of get into that topic. Um, and so I think for me, being able to do those things here at GCDS has been really wonderful because I've also learned a lot from my students. Um, because then they are able to feel empowered to contribute um, or understand the concepts and topics we're learning about, but using their own frames of reference. Um, for instance, when I'm, te I'm teaching this year a class on revolutions around the world, and when we were getting into the history of Algeria, some students were making sort of um, trying creating metaphors with regards to like sports trying to think about like the interactions on the battlefield in a way to how athletes perform on the sports fields um, 
I would never have thought of those connections, but it was valid and it helped me also understand that student and know what, what was important to them. And so I think just really not assuming that we, we teachers are like the holders of knowledge and we have, you know, the students have to earn that, right? I think that um, that's something that I am grateful that I don't have to do and it's not expected of me, but rather saying, hey, I know something really cool, let me share it with you and I want to hear what you think about this. Um, and that's, I think, what for me sets GCDS apart and why I so much enjoy like coming to school each day. Right. Yeah. I love how you've built uh, community into your classrooms. I think that's very important. Yeah. I think that a lot of high schools should do that moving forward. Yeah, most yeah. definitely. I mean, as I, I say in my classroom, um, there should never be an instance where we all agree on something. Because if we all agree on something, then I'm not doing my job as, as the teacher in the room. Um, I, I tell my students that I want them to ask questions. I want them to ask why and how. And I want them to sort of consider how multiple con things can exist and be true at the same time, even if they're in conflict. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because of our varied lived experiences. Um, and so I think that you know, one thing I'm really proud of is that I have classes where students may not really interact with each other outside of that classroom. They're part of different friend groups or different, you know, sports or different clubs. But in the context of that classroom, they can engage with one another in, um, in you know, discussion on really challenging or complex topics. And I think part of that is because we've, we've worked really hard to create that community where we are willing to listen to one another and also say, I don't agree with you, but this is why. And sort of learning to sort of engage with ideas, not be so eager to attack or critique a person, but rather ideas and concepts instead. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. Of course. And the, for the final question, if you could say one thing to students at GCDS who might be first generation, um, what would you say? I would tell them to take up space, um, and that's purely because for me, I've, I've, I've worked really hard my whole life um, to be comfortable taking up space. And um, I think that that's something often that first generation students um, or any student who comes from like an underrepresented group often feels like they don't necessarily have the right to do so. Right. Um, and I think that um, we give people the power to treat us how we want to be treated. And so if we want to be acknowledged, affirmed, recognized for all of the wonderful um, multifaceted things we can bring to an environment, I think that that means then we also have to take up space. Um, and also to say that you are worthy, even if you don't hear that from people, um, I think that that's important to remind oneself that they are worthy to be in any and all spaces that they want to be in. And um, I think that, go, you know, also give back, just because we never know what others are going through. And so give back and assume um, positive intent on people's parts. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much. Of course. Much. Thank you, ladies. I appreciate it. And I hope today's episode helps keep our stories and perspectives in mind. Thanks again for listening, and until next time.